The views and opinions expressed on coffee and compatibility are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Ashi. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Coffee and Compatibility. I am Eric Weimer, and with me is the blonde-haired Dr. Kelly Hitchman. How are you? Oh, it's it's not blue. I'm good. I, I <laughs> okay. liked the blue. I, I liked the blue, it. I the blue was, was fun. The maintenance just just silly. Uh, so yeah, and and getting rid of it was not easy to do. So oh, for those imagine. for those alone, I I am grateful that they left my hair color as is, uh, during, during that whole poll thing. Um, whew, thank goodness. Yeah. Great annual meeting. Glad to be back in the swing of normalcy, but not for long because the holidays are upon us. Dun, <laughs> almost, dun, dun. almost dun, dun, dun. So, um, you know, all, all of the, uh, frantic holiday rush, all of the family traditions. Do you have any family traditions, Eric, around the holidays? Yeah, that's a good that's a good one. Um it's like one of my favorite times of year too. I think my son has been talking about uh the holidays since like the literal end of the last holiday season. Is it is it Christmas yet? Is it Christmas yet? Um yeah, so we usually make uh Christmas cookies uh as a family. I've been doing that since I was a, a kid, um which is means it's still happening now. And you know, so I look forward to doing that every year. Uh, it's usually a lot of a lot of fun. Yourself? Yeah, I think my biggest tradition is trying to keep a firm grip on sanity, like throughout. <laughs> the end of the year. <laughs> I feel like everything leading up to the end of the year is just like this massive rush. Um, so yeah, yeah, trying to hold on to reality and sanity is um, a, my favorite tradition. Um, but other than that, I agree that it's kind of a magical time for kids. And I have two kids. Um, so most of the holiday uh, traditions kind of revolve around them and their various states of feeling about Santa, elves, not Santa elves, like, you know, the as they get older and they change and all that stuff. So we're, you know, we're battling all, all of those, those things, including an elf on the shelf, which if you haven't started that yet, I highly recommend you don't. We have not. And don't so, do it. Don't do it. <laughs> noted. So, so noted. Oh my gosh. After like five days, I'm like, oh, I can't think of anything else to do. Like the first five days, I'm like the most creative person on the planet. And then it's just like, oh my God, he's in the refrigerator again. <laughs> <laughs> I totally ran out. Uh, well, it, it, thank goodness. I, you know how I love my transitions. Thank goodness um, that we we are creative here in the podcast. So per usual, we got to throw, throw a new angle at you um, here in 2024. I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. I'm just going to say that we're um, going to stick with one episode a month. It's going to be a little beefier. Our episodes are going to be a little beefier and we're going to introduce a new segment. But I'm not going to say what it is. 
do you want to do you want to say anything eric is there anything that i should have said that i left out uh i think that this this new segment is going to make give people and the listeners an opportunity to feel that we are relating to things that matter to them Hmm, intriguing yet vague i like it yeah that's my specialty (laughs) awesome awesome (laughs) and dearest listeners i think the most important thing for the podcast in 2024 is our desire to hear from you we want you to make it a tradition throughout 2024 that you are going to reach out to us and uh, you know, tell us what you want to hear on the podcast. Um, there's a form now to collect continuing education credits for listening to the podcast. And you're going to find a new section on that form that is specifically for you to jot down any ideas you have or anything that you want to hear us talk about on the podcast, uh, including even speakers that you might want us to invite on the show. Yeah, I mean, if you need to, just email Kelly or myself your favorite family traditions. Oh, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> we, we might need to adopt them. <laughs> Folks, we'll be right back after this message with Reed Hall, a transplant pharmacist, who will help us honor the memory of two-time part recipient Amy Silverstein and to carry her torch um, regarding her concerns with immunosuppression and access and understanding of transplant data and patient-specific therapies post-transplantation. We'll be right back. Welcome so much, everyone, to this episode of Coffee and Compatibility. Today, we will be speaking with Reed Hall. Uh, Dr. Hall is the lead solid organ transplant clinical pharmacy specialist at University Health in San Antonio, Texas. He's also board certified in pharmacotherapy and solid organ transplant and serves as the residency program director of the solid organ transplant pharmacy PGY2 residency at University Health. Is it okay? We asked all of our guest can we call you reed oh absolutely i don't answer to much else (laughs) that's probably wise (laughs) so reed and i actually worked together um at the county hospital in san antonio at the um, university uh, transplant institute and so i've known reed for many many years now and reed was so kind to come on uh this very special episode of coffee and compatibility which we're really um using to um honor in memory Um, a two-time heart recipient named Amy Silverstein. Um, Just to recap the audience, um, Amy Silverstein was one of the very first um, patient guests on Coffee and Compatibility. She was on the show in our very, very first year. And Amy is um, 
grateful for her transplant in all aspects, but also very, very honest with the transplant community about both the good and um, the things that we could do better. And so sometimes some of those things are hard to hear and hard to talk about, um, but we definitely feel like keeping Amy's um, mission alive is very, very important. Um, so like I said, Amy Silverstein was a two-time heart recipient. Um, she lived with those transplants for 35 years. She uh, passed away just this past May, May 5th in 2023. And right before she passed, she did an interview on CBS Sunday morning on April 23rd, 2023. And I want to open this episode by reading a quote from Amy Silverstein from that episode that really gets to the heart of what we want to talk um, to read about today. Amy Silverstein said, in 40 years, there's been very limited change in the medicines that patients take daily to prevent rejection of their donor organs. These immunosuppressive drugs continue to wreak havoc on the body, dramatically increasing the risk of diabetes, kidney failure, dangerous infections, and yes, cancers. And that last part is especially poignant because Amy was very um, open and honest about the fact um, that she passed away due to cancer, incurable cancer, um, that was a likely side effect of all the immunosuppressions that she was taking uh, to maintain her heart transplants. Um, so Amy um, really wanted to um, have the transplant community carry on the torch of trying to make improvements in transplant um, medicine and transplant therapy um, for the benefit of all the patients that would come in the future. So Reed, can you um, kind of recap for us when Amy says that in 40 years, there's been limited change to immunosuppression. What are the immunosuppressions that most centers are applying to transplant patient care and kind of a, a loose why? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at what centers do, and, and, and I also think it's important to realize that not every center is the same. Um, and not every transplanted organ is the same. Um, and so when you look at the immunomodulation of any given patient or any given organ at any given time, um, you can kind of get really deep in the weeds there as far as like what decisions are made and what medications are used, um, what doses are adjusted and, and, and all of those things. Um, I am personally not uh, a heart transplant, uh, you know, pharmacist. I haven't taken care of many heart transplants, but, um, in general, you know, I think again, depending on the organ and if you're specifically talking about maintenance immunosuppression, the majority of patients are going to start off on, uh, a calcineur inhibitor, that's usually going to be tacrolimus, um, some kind of anti-metabolite, which is usually um, a derivative of um, uh, mycophenolic acid, uh, and then uh, steroids in some way, shape, or form. And that, over my career here at university, has been the case for, uh, you know, pretty much almost, uh, you know, every transplant. Yeah, thank you that for Reed. And, you know, it's such a complex issue, right, of, of how to suppress, you know, sort of your naturally evolved 
immune system, right? That serves so many other functions while preserving, you know, whether it's the organ or preventing any of the side effects that, that Kelly mentioned can happen in these scenarios. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how, how do we take the field from where it is today and begin to push the envelope into new sort of personalized approaches to immunosuppression for organ transplantation. And you're, I completely appreciate the fact that different organs are are handled in a different manner, but just your like general sense of where where is that boundary between where we're at and where you sort of see us going? Right. And I don't I don't know that, you know, the answer to that is always, you know, from my standpoint, is is it going to be a drug? Um, and I don't necessarily think that's an issue, or is it some kind of a less immunogenic or non-immunogenic organ for that individual patient, right? Um and so uh, you know, in, in a perfect world, they would put me out of, out of a job, you know, um, and, and we wouldn't have to worry about some of that immunomodulation, right? Are we going up? Are we going down? Is the patient infected? Do we think we have a cancer or something like that? Right. And, and modulating the, the drugs that way. Um, I think, you know, what we do now is, is, you know, you, you try and modulate the, the immunosuppression meds based on each individual patient and, and what they're showing you in clinic, what some of the lab values are, what the drug levels are, um, what is your protocol, you know, where, what are the experiences and, and how that patient's, you know, clinically doing when they're in front of you. Um, some of the things that are brought up are always going to be you know, the, the diabetogenicity of some of the medications. Um, and then obviously, you know, infections and cancers and trying to limit that. And, and some of the stuff that, you know, we're doing is basically how do we even better manage other chronic disease states outside of the, the transplant specific medications. And so, you know, I, I think we've, we've switched focus on a lot of organs into, you know, we need to make sure that we are taking care of all of these things and doing them very well. Um, and, and using the medications to treat diabetes or whatever it is, um, to their fullest potential. Uh, and, you know, I think that's something that is, is kind of on the forefront of every center's mind and for you know our group as, as transplant pharmacists and stuff i think we do a very good job of managing medications and we've kind of been able to show that we can use some some different drugs um for diabetes or whatever it is uh in transplant patients to help them um you know control those disease states and help with um, um the overall you know care care of those patients. And so I think short-term, you know, that's kind of where we're at long-term, um, you know, super long-term, you hope that at some point in time, you don't necessarily need the immunosuppressants that you need. To. You brought up a couple really good things. Um, it's true. I think that we, especially if, if we're not in transplant pharmacy, if, if we're in the HLA lab or if we're in like a different niche space, we tend to think like in a very focused view about what the medications the patients are taking to immunosuppress them to, to you know, help 
their transplant be maintained, but that's not a holistic view of the patient. And from a transplant pharmacy perspective, you're not only focused on the immunosuppression, you're focused on the total holistic view of the patient, which is so, so, so complex and, but also interrelated. And I agree, like, I think in the future, these um, multidisciplinary partnerships are going to be key um, to changing the way that we approach therapeutics in these cases. Um, in the HLA space, we're working on different strategies to evaluate immune risk that might help tailor immunosuppression in the future, um, either less immunosuppression or maybe a different kind of immunosuppression. So I think those are all really, really important points that I gather from, from what you're saying. Reed, what do you think is um, a big barrier to innovation with regards to new immunomodulatories, new therapeutics specific to the transplant space? I'm sure it's way more complicated than just one thing, but what, what do you think is holding that back? Ooh, that's a tough question. I don't know about holding it back. So I think you've got to step back to some of the basic science things that, that, you know, people are doing and those guys, those people doing that are, you know, way smarter than I am. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes when, when you, you look at patients and you know that you can get through that transplant event and, and you can get them to living, you know, longer lives and one, three, you know, getting kidney patients off dialysis, um, doing a successful liver transplant and some of those things, you don't want to um, take a step backwards, right? Like you don't, you don't want to do something that can jeopardize that organ. And so, you know, using other drugs um, or studying other drugs, you, 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 we've kind of set the, the bar pretty high where our rejection rate um are pretty low and the the lifespan of those organs is 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 doing a lot better than it was when you look back you know 30 40 years right and so with, with low rejection rates and a functioning transplanted organ you know how how badly do you want to kind of you know step out and so I, I and i think some of that is is probably where that kind of like um call for innovation is is you know um what what can we do and how can we get better? And again, I think some of that is, you know, how can you get a drug that does a similar thing, but it doesn't hurt your kidneys or it doesn't increase your risk for diabetes or it doesn't increase your risk for cancers. Um, and you can still do that transplant and be very successful with it. Um, so I think that is a very tough question. Um, but, you know, I think at, at some point in time, you know, I, I do think something better has to happen in it. Again, I think it might be outside of the drug realm at, at some point in time that, you know, we, a, a drug that decreases your immune system or makes your immune system not work very well is inherently a, a toxic thing, right? Like you're not going to give that to a patient if they don't need it. Um, and so, is there a way to step away from that in general, I think might be a better um, or end up being the answer. Um, you know, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it, it certainly makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think 
you know, we've talked on this show before about sort of the future of transplantation, and we've talked with some pioneers in that in that realm. Um, and so certainly I, you know, I agree with you. I hope that the future includes not having to to worry about immune suppression. I don't necessarily agree we want to put you out of a job because you seem like a pretty cool guy who's pretty Oh yeah, smart, we need so. Reed. Yeah. We need I mean, Reed. <laughs> I'll be around somewhere. You can not worry about that. Well, good. The you brought up an interesting point, I think, uh, from sort of a, a lab perspective, is you know, as you're approaching your patients and in the lab, we we present you, the clinical team, with a number of lab values, whether they're like histocompatibility related or other areas of relating to your patient. We present you with a number of lab values. Are there particular lab values in regards to like therapy modulation that sort of stick out to you as things that you're focusing on for your patients to change therapy, modulate it like that? I mean, obviously, like function of the organ, right? Um, for, you know, uh, a liver transplant, you're going to be looking at their liver labs, AST, ALT, uh, Billy, um, all those fun things. Uh, kidney, you're going to look at, obviously, always look at their creatinine, um, lungs, FEV1, those, those types of things. Um, you know, I think you're also going to, and so you're going to go through, you're going to look at all that depending what drugs you have on, you know, you know, do you want to make sure that, and part of what we do as, as pharmacists is going to be, Hey, start this drug, make sure you get these labs. And some of it is immunosuppression wise. A, a lot of it is also side effect wise. Right. And so we've kind of talked about that. The drugs have side effects. And so, you know, do you need a urinalysis? Do you need, um, you know, urinary protein, what do you need? And so that's kind of part of what we do to make sure those things are, are, are being monitored and make sure that we're addressing all of that. So kind of, I think when you get, when you're in clinical practice and you're seeing patients um, and you're working them up and you kind of go through their chart, or you go through previous notes and you see what they're on, what their history is, and what they're doing, you almost have a have a list of things you want to look at. And if something's not there, then you, you you try and get you know the level or whatever. And then you go and you talk to the patient, obviously. And so, um, you know, with with the residents and stuff, I always tell them, you know, don't don't be afraid to talk to the patients. Always go and talk to the patients. Don't be afraid to you know to to treat the patients and have those conversations because those, from our standpoint, are also very very important because. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I can be the best clinician in the world, but if you and your patient can't sit down and come up with a plan to take your medications, then I'm, I'm no good to anyone. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think those are always things that we're doing and those are things that we're teaching pharmacists and, and hopefully, um, you know, some of the other professions that are around to kind of do and, and make sure you sit down and talk about. And so for each individual patient and kind of each individual um, organ that's transplanted, depending on what their past medical history is, how far out they are from transplant. Um, you know, I, you, you kind of have a list of things. And then if it's something where you're continuing care, where maybe you saw them on the inpatient side, or you were part of that, you know, their individual transplant event and things, you know, a little bit more, you know, there's always things that are going to be in your head. Okay. This patient had, you know, this infection a month ago or whatever. Right. And you're always kind of trying to put that whole picture together to, to help the team, tailor the medications. 
Read something really interesting that I kind of see in in transplant literature. There are a few centers out there that are like aggressively involved in, um, you know, like drug trials, clinical trials, mm-hmm. you know, like that not even maybe formalized clinical trials, but they're tr- like trying new um, medications to complement um, people's uh, therapy post-transplant. They're putting them on, you know, very specific immunomodulatories that people don't typically use. Mm-hmm. A very few centers doing this. And so you see all this coming out in the literature and then I never see anybody actually using it. <laughs> So like, what's, what's going on with that? Like, so are, are those studies just kind of inconclusive? Have, is it just that a lot of them haven't moved to formal clinical trials? We see like all these innovative things coming from like these kind of repeatedly same centers, but then they don't seem to go anywhere. What, what happens with that? Uh, You know, I, I think a lot of that. And so I've seen, you kind of see things come through. And so, you know, rituximab, bortezomib, eculizumab, all of these have been, you know, studied in fairly well. And, and as they kind of come through, and I think we rely on a lot of those centers to, when they do those things to kind of tell us, you know, who, who's this working in, who's it not working in, what do you suggest? And so kind of at the end of the day, when you look at it, it's, it's going to be, can I apply it to my patient? Right. And who do you apply it to? Um, and what's the outcome um, that can be expected when you do apply it? So, you know, if it's not like a big, like uh, clinical trial and, and things like that, sometimes you've got to piece a lot of that data together. And sometimes it's, you know, when you start piecing it together, sometimes it's more complete than, uh, than other times. And sometimes it's applicable to your patients. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the risks that, you know, with all those, any therapy, there's always going to be a risk. And sometimes the risks that you are not willing to take based on the risks that we're taking in data and, and then, and then what the, the outcomes are of that data, um, you know, and, and how, you know, what are you trying to do? You know, are you, are you trying to desensitize and, and, and get somebody transplanted? Are we trying to treat diseases down the road, right? And and so it's almost like two different phases when you see some of these things. Is it is it the transplant event? Is it treatment and management of rejection? Is it long-term immunosuppression and maintenance management? Is it comorbid disease state management? You know, what what are we doing and can I apply that to my patients? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really good point. I'm going to, I'm going to end with leaving it to, uh, to you and your choice of two points that come up in in these conversations is the role of diagnostic tools in monitoring side effects from all of these drugs. Are they at a, at a position where you feel they should be, or should there be more or better tools at your disposal to better understand side effects is one. Or you can you can give me your thoughts on the role of artificial intelligence in piecing all of these bits together, right? Because you talk about how you know there's some centers doing these studies and it's 
you're relying on them to give you insights into who it may or may not work for, right? And all the bits that go into all of that. And so the second question is, how do you see AI influencing sort of that process in the future? So with the with our last question here, if you want to decide which one of those, and we'll leave the other one as a cliffhanger. So what, okay, so what do you mean by diagnostic tests for side effects? Give me an example. Um, so I, I mean, more often than not, right, we measure drug levels, we measure okay. other side effects related to some sort of medication, right? Um, as, as a proxy for the damage or the, like, are they developing diabetes following this, right? Like, is there... Or do you wish that there were better tools that would predict maybe uh, who is going to have a more or less of the side effect when they might have a side effect? Um, you can see I'm totally speculating here. Okay. Um, so something like that um, is what I was envisioning. Okay. So um, I think I'm going to kind of go with that one because I think that's probably what we deal with clinically on a daily basis, right? So I think some things are very good at kind of detecting and knowing who's at risk for um, different things. And and we do, we do a lot of diabetes management. So, you know, um, if you're talking, you know, months after transplant, you can look at A1Cs and um, you could even do, you know, once the steroids are down and they're kind of on what they're gonna be on, is it uh, or glucose tolerance test and things like that, just depending on how you know sensitive you want to get with your with your test. So I think some of those things we do very well. I would like to see better ways to, I don't know how to phrase this other than, you know, what is your immunosuppressive or immunomodulated state, right? Uh, one to 10, when you want you at a seven. You know, you come in, you measure whatever level it is, and you're at a five. I'm like, okay, so we need to do something, right? Or you're at an eight, so you're at an increased risk for a cancer or something like that, right? Or or an infection, so we need to, to modify something else, right? And so with kind of our current therapies or immunosuppressive therapies in general, um, kind of knowing like where they are outside of, you know, infections, um, rejection, drug level, things like that. Right. Um, um, you know, renal function or, or some of those other things. So like we know your overall immunosuppressive state and then we can adjust, you know, uh, accordingly, um, that would be really cool. Right. And so that's kind of always something we, we talk about with residents and, and students and stuff is like, you know, we, we, we kind of have a bunch of surrogate markers for, for a patient's uh, immunosuppressive state. And you don't really know where each individual patient's immune system is. Um, but we have enough experience that we can kind of put a few things together and be like, okay, like we need to change this or we need to change that. And we'll follow up with you and get more labs. Um, so, you know, those things I think would be really cool um, and, and applicable. Um, you know, other things again, like blood pressure and things like that, you can measure that, you know, somebody has high blood pressure and we know how to treat that. Uh, and, and so, um, as far as like some of those tests to help us manage patients, um, 
that's you know i guess probably pretty would be pretty applicable to y'all with you know that would be a cool thing no i think that that is that is a fantastic answer so thank you very much for your time sir i greatly appreciate it thanks reed Welcome back, guys. It is time for the tea, a segment dedicated to answering questions from our listeners. This question comes to us from Shocker, as usual, an anonymous listener. Listener writes, Xenotransplant is thankfully making strides, but it seems that SLAs, I think they mean swine leukocyte antigens, are not important and CDC cross-match positive did not cause pig organ rejection. Clinical trials of xenotransplant are expected to start as early as next year. Apart from that, we hear that as FDA starts regulating clinical labs, many small HLA labs will close. Therefore, what do you think are long-term career prospects in the HLA lab? Will HLA labs be around or important 10 to 20 years from now? Oh my goodness. Okay. So let me crack my knuckles a little bit. Let me get prepared Some. to flex a little bit. Okay. So um, I'd like to start by thanking this listener for this question. It is so relevant. It is so important. The first part of it, I kind of disagree with. Now I am by no means an expert in xenotransplantation, um, but I have a few friends that are. So um, I talked to Sam Ho and Massimo Mangiola about this, both folks very, very well-versed in swine leukocyte antigen research and in xenotransplant. And they actually feel like it's not at all conclusive that swine leukocyte antigen does not play a role in poor outcomes in xenotransplantation. We actually don't have effective assays to measure swine leukocyte antigen load in patients. And there's actually a recent um, study out by the Tector group um, that talks about um, you can find swine leukocyte, leukocyte um, antigen antibodies in patients. Um, and uh, Dr. Mangiola in particular felt that the CDC crossmatch in particular was really not indicative of outcomes in these xenotransplant cases. Um, and Sam Ho felt like we didn't yet have um, enough work on accurate assays in this area. So yes, xenotransplantation is moving forward, but I think there's um, there's still room to do more research on the meaningful nature or lack thereof of swine leukocyte antigen specific antibodies in these patients and the types of testing that we should be doing to support those transplants. Um, with regard to the FDA regulations, um, I think HLA specific testing is still going to have an exemption from FDA regulation, um, but that's HLA specific testing only. Um, I am a huge proponent of HLA labs um, stretching their capacity, stretching their expertise into um, molecular diagnostics that are not necessarily HLA specific, but that benefit um, the transplant space, the histocompatibility spaces, the immunogenetic spaces. I do feel like labs that don't diversify will likely not be around 10 to 20 years from now. And, and now I'm going to be quiet because I think Eric's opinion is probably much more substantive than mine. <laughs> uh, that's, that's unlikely. 
Um, I I agree with the the everything you said regarding SLAs. I think you know, Massimo and Sam are are sort of, I think, recognized leaders in that area. So I sort of respect their their opinion on on that matter. The FDA thing is is a tricky one because it's somewhat out of our control, right? Like uh, we as Ashi advocate to the fullest extent that we can as a society for the uniqueness and the value that we bring for our transplant patients and how it differs from some of the other areas in medicine. And, and we will continue to, to do that and emphasize the role we play. So I'm, I'm optimistic that the FDA and has heard how impactful we as a community are for our patients and, and, hopeful that that will remain the case as, as that sort of regulation progresses in regards to the like HLA future scenario, you know, I, uh, I take pretty similar position in that, you know, right now we really do just a very small number of things, right? Cross-matching typing, uh, antibody analysis, that's not to diminish their importance. That's just to say that we we sort of have hung our hat on a few things. And, um, you know, the world around us is evolving quite quickly, whether that's uh, big data analysis, different ways of developing and using these tools, things that we haven't even really done, but we've hinted at. Uh, many of you have heard me talk about the role of uh, HLA expression in recipients and donors, something we used for hematopoietic cell transplantation um, in terms of selection of donors, but we don't really utilize at all for solid organ purposes. Um, and there are tools that are coming available or will be available that, you know, we can start to do these things. And to me, this represents the future of where our, our expertise is, is continuing to be good at what we do moving the bar slightly from just routine antibody analysis to maybe we start to figure out the quality, memory B cells. Some of these things you've heard about mentioned at the annual meeting, at the educational workshops, uh, you know, moving their way into sort of routine clinical practice. And, uh, you know, my belief is that this is where Ashi pins its hat is as a, a world leader in transplant diagnostics. Yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe it's HLA laboratories answering um, Reed's call to have more um, diagnostics that are kind of more holistic to the immune system and the immune state of transplant recipients. Um, you know, maybe it's donor-derived cell-free DNA testing. Maybe, I mean, there are lots of HLA labs already mm -hmm. doing chimerism testing, right? Yep. So maybe, you know, we're stretching and partnering more with molecular diagnostics. Uh, maybe we're developing, you know, more, um, you know, immunologic assays. I agree. Exactly. So that that was a great one. So thank you so much for uh, for that suggestion and that question, listener. We appreciate you. And as always, if you need career advice or advice on how to deal with something happening in your lab, visit our podcast page at ashi-hla.org/page/ashi backslash podcast or email us at info at ashi-hla.org and write the T, T-E-A, in the subject line.
I really enjoyed this episode. I think, you know, it's a lot of complexity to choose, maintain, modulate, you know, someone's therapy. And I think, I think Reed did an excellent job of sort of grounding us back in the, as you said it, uh, the holistic view of the, the whole patient. And, um, you know, it's still, there's a lot of room for improvement. I think that's, that's, um, that's something that we can all participate in. Absolutely. I mean, just along that point you're making, it's a multidisciplinary need for improvement. You know, so in the histocompatibility space, we can work on trying to have more accurate and meaningful risk assessments for these transplant patients in the first place. Um, you know, the drug development space can do work. The clinical space can do work. There is improvement to be had all around. And maybe that's the best way we can honor Amy's call to action is to all dig in on it and not assume that it's just going to be, you know, one type of thing. Yeah. You know, and I think he touched on the other point of that the answer to the sort of statement that you posed from Amy was may not actually be new drugs or therapy. And I think that's important for us to remember that sometimes we get pigeonholed ourselves into a particular area. And I'd say that, you know, particularly for HLA labs, um, I agree with you in the immunologic risk assessments that we that we sort of routinely do. But I'd also argue that when it comes to like R&D for new therapies, the collective ashi we should, should also be involved. And, you know, let's not just close ourselves into this, this hole of uh, we just do histocompatibility and immunogenetics and just do risk assessments, right? Like mm-hmm. let's, let's remember our expertise and, you know, work with our collaborators across pharmacy and clinical partners and, and, you know, people pursuing a number of different avenues. So, yeah. yeah I mean, I he this- also mentioned like some new diagnostic tools, uh, just, you know, like, new new tools to to tell us about you know the overall health and state you know of the transplant recipients immune system so you know more tangible clinical tools in the lab so yeah it's a, it's a challenge for all of us yeah i i really liked his his answer in terms of like his dream of like a personalized immunosuppression score um you know and i think that's sort of, i'm that's out beyond my sort of area of expertise. But um, for anyone listening who is, I'd encourage you to to pursue that. And, you know, this, this is uh, what we need is a field of, you know, people dedicated towards improving people's lives is, you know, biggest things happen when you cross disciplines, right? Uh, you stay within your area and it is less of a dramatic impact. So, uh, yeah, I thought this was great. I really liked it. Yeah, so it's a call to action for everybody that includes us, histocompatibility and immunogenetics community. So um, hopefully this episode has you thinking as much as it has Eric and I thinking. Awesome. Until next time, guys. Bye.